we're in a time right now where um, people are responding to diversity, inclusion, and equity. And a way that a lot of teachers are sort of feeling they can do something is to have more diverse books. And that is legitimate, and that is a first step. But as I say to people, Kate, you can give someone all the books that reflect different types of um, children and experiences, It's not the books, it's the conversations that the adult is willing to have with the children or students about the books. Welcome back to Chalk and Ink, the podcast for teachers who write and writers who teach. I'm your host, Kate Narita, author of 100 Bugs Accounting Book and fourth grade teacher. Today, I have a terrific treat for you. Picture book author and instructional coach, Valerie Bone talks about the power of a weekly critique group, how being open to feedback will lead to breakthrough moment after breakthrough moment, and how we as educators must be willing to examine our own implicit biases and discuss racism with our students. Let's dive in. Hi, Valerie. I am so excited to talk with you today. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Kate. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, I'm really excited about our conversation. Could you please tell us a little bit about who you are as a teacher and who you are as a writer? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I'd actually say it's a it's a similar answer. I'm a, I'm pretty much who I am as a teacher is who I am as a writer, and that is I'm focused on children at the forefront of anything I do as an educator or as a writer, I'm always thinking of children, um, you know, in the classroom and working with teachers as an instructional coach, I'm always asking them about their students um, as we seek to um, have them perform optimally, we need to know who they are because by knowing who they are, that's when we're able to encourage them to be the best student they can be. We need to know who they are as a person, what their interests are, what they're passionate about, what their struggles might be. Um, So knowing them is so important. And it's the same thing as a writer. Since I write for children, I have to be aware of my, my audience. How am I going to word something or write something that will capture children, that will make them interested, that will, um, you know, that's written in a way that they can understand it. So that's really um, who I am. That is such a gorgeous answer. And it's exactly how I feel. My primary focus is children, no matter where I go or what I do, be it in the classroom or when I'm writing or, you know, in my own family. And you are the first person to express it in the exact same way I feel, which is really exciting for me. So thank you for expressing that so beautifully. Thank you. You know, I want to really talk about what you said there. I think it's extremely important. You know, your job is to help students perform to the best of their ability. And what you're saying is we can't do that as educators unless we know our students. And I think social emotional learning is the big buzzword right now, but I don't think people really understand what that is. And to me, what you're saying is if we don't have a strong social emotional connection to our students, it doesn't matter what we teach because they're not going to be learning unless they feel connected to us. 
You are absolutely right. And that's where, you know, when I meet with teachers and they're talking about, you know, a student who may be excelling and is doing so wonderfully, I love to hear that. But I always want to know why, because maybe there's something there that can help the student who is struggling a bit. Or how do we keep that student performing at the excellent level? Because, you know, things can change. And likewise, I don't allow teachers to get into a place where they're complaining about a student and being negative because everyone has something wonderful and special about them. And if you can't find that, you need to work to find that because students deserve that. And I always say, you know, this is someone's child and you have to just treat each person as an individual and really find out their strengths and capital and capitalize on that. I'll tell you a story back when I was teaching fifth grade, I had a student who was very shy and she didn't speak up much. She was, she was bright though. Um, and I remember at the student teacher conference, you know, her parents started out, I know she doesn't talk. I know what, you know, what, cause she had heard this for years. And I said, no, I said, I'm not going to talk to you about how Michelle doesn't participate a lot and this and that. But I said, what I want to do is show you what Michelle has done in this classroom. I said, do you see that bulletin board over there? Michelle's the one who stayed after school and put the bulletin board together. Um, and it, by the end of the year, we did author's teas where, you know, I would invite parents in and students would read their work. And at the very first one, I asked Michelle to be the MC and she did it. And she introduced each student by name and the title of what the student was going to read. So you have to, you know, you, there's always something that you can, that you can tap into. And I just want to say another thing about social emotional uh, learning and health, because we're in a pandemic right now. And my role is primarily focused first with adults because I'm working with teachers And I have had to get to know teachers the same way I get to know students. Not every teacher who comes to me, I have some teachers who come to me and they immediately want to dive into, this is what I want want to get better at, let's begin work right away. And there are other teachers, particularly now, there's a teacher I meet with every other week and we meet just for 30 minutes during her lunch hour, lunch break, it's not an hour because she says, She can't even think about, you know, meeting with me at another time. And I've said to her, look, we don't have to continue meeting. And she said, no, I need these meetings. I want these meetings. But she said, I feel badly because I can't even begin to talk to you about how to improve my teaching practice. I just need to talk to you about how to get through each day and and how to sort of plan in a way to meet the needs of my remote learners and my in-class learners and how do I deal with this email from this parent and how do I deal with, you know, this set of papers or, you know, that just came in that I have to grade. And I said, that's fine. I meet you where you are, you know, maybe next year we'll be working more on a, you know, specific goal. But right now each week we're kind of dealing with what she needs 
at that time. And that is absolutely fine. So all of us need to do that, whether it's as teachers with, with students, whether it's me as an instructional coach with teachers. And we need to think about this obviously as well in our personal lives with our, with our family and friends. People are in very different places right now and we need to find out where they are. I've been saying we need to offer patience and grace for others and for ourselves. Well, I'm in tears right now. <laughs> I had to gather myself while you were speaking. I think that was so eloquently put. You know, um, I work with a fabulous team of individuals. I work with three other women. We've got four fourth grade teachers. And there is not one week that's gone by this fall where someone hasn't burst into tears. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. And we, you know, thankfully we work so well together and we have uh, one another to support each other. And I cannot imagine doing this work this year without them. Mm -hmm. I, I just can't imagine. And what you said there is so important. You know, as teachers, we have to meet each student where they are. And I think, as you also said, and I know you're not officially an administrator, but that's what a good administrator does too, right? Is yes. each one of their, you know, teachers where, you know, where they are. And so I think that's just so incredibly important right now. We have to remember that. We have to keep that at the forefront. I mean, we absolutely, we just do. So before we move on to... Um, you know, our next question that we were going to talk about, I do want to talk about your picture book, Let's Dance, because I think, you know, the first eight minutes of this podcast, we've really talked about ways to reach each student. And in your book, Let's Dance, you worked really hard to make sure that, you know, any student in a classroom is going to see themselves in your book. And I was hoping that you could talk about that. Sure, I'd love to. Um, that is something I'm very committed to. I want to write books where children can see themselves. I've, I've said before, I want all children to feel seen and heard, valued and validated. And so when I had a conversation with my editor, Jess Negron from Boyd's Mills and Kane about my vision for the book, I said, I want a lot of diverse kids in this book. Truthfully, I said to her, I want a lot of brown kids in this book. And I also had a vision for more than just race. I knew that I wanted, um, I, as I said to her, I want a boy in a tutu in the ballet spread. And actually when the book arrived, I looked and at first I didn't know if it was a boy. I'm like, but I asked for a boy and it's a, and then I was like, huh? Oh my goodness, this is even better. You can't tell. Um, so I, I loved that part of it. I, there were lines, um, there's a line that it's now Irish step dancing. And I had written jiggity jig, zigzag, zig. And the lines zigzag, zig, I specifically wrote because I envisioned a boy in a wheelchair because I'd been at a wedding and there'd been a young man in a wheelchair who was in the middle of the dance floor in his wheelchair. The front two legs are up and he, the movement he was making was a zigzag, zig move. 
Um, so it was absolutely, you know, I'm like, I, I need someone in a wheelchair. But then when that became Irish step dancing, we did get someone in a wheelchair in um, the disco spread. I also said I when I wrote Tappity Tap um, for the uh, Tappity Tap Finger Snap, which I thought would be tap dancing, I said, and it might be good to have someone blind who's tapping a cane. So there is someone blind in that spread. And then later I said, particularly there's been, you know, Muslim phobia. I said, I want someone in here has to be in hijab. Now, some people would say, oh my goodness, you're, you know, mixing all these things and you're saying you want this and you want that and so forth. But that's the way the world is. And one thing I didn't ask for, but I'm so glad it's there, is we have different body types represented too. We have a couple kids who are not thin in the book and and it's wonderful. Um, So my vision was that, but Jess was the one who took it and she globalized it because she saw in my words the possibility for dances from other cultures. And so that's why the what I thought would be tap dancing became flamenco. What I thought would be, you know, a boy in a wheelchair zigzag zigging, that spread became Irish step dancing. Um, so I was really pleased with her vision. I, I will say the one dance, the cultural dance that was in there from the beginning was uh, Cuckoo from Guinea, West Africa, because that's a dance that I learned in college. So when I wrote that, I knew that that would be that dance. But she brought in Chinese long sleeve dancing and Kathak from India. And so it, it was just, it was wonderful. And I have had children say to me, Kate, when I've read this, I had a um, a girl from Pakistan say, I'm from Pakistan, I'm not from India but we, you know, have a very similar dance. I had a sixth grader when I read this at for World Read Aloud Day to sixth graders, and I mentioned the story behind Zigzag Zig, and I shared, even though I didn't with you just now, but the other thing about that young man is that he actually um, has cerebral palsy. And I mentioned that at the time I was telling the story. And a sixth grader in a, in a library packed with other sixth graders raised his hand and said, I have cerebral palsy. Now, how often is someone with cerebral palsy necessarily going to see themselves in a book? And that boy is not in a wheelchair. And again, my book doesn't call out cerebral palsy, but when I talk about it and you know that, then a connection can be made. And the last thing I'll say, um, I know my answers are quite lengthy, which I warned you about before the podcast and anyone who knows me knows, but I think it's important to say this. We're in a time right now where um, people are responding to diversity, inclusion, and equity. And a way that a lot of teachers are sort of feeling they can do something is to have more diverse books. And that is legitimate, and that is a first step. But as I say to people, Kate, you can give someone all the books that reflect different types of um, children and experiences it's not the books, it's the conversations that the adult is willing to have with the children or students 
about the books. So for instance, I'll use my book as an example. You can read Let's Dance and just enjoy the rhyming language. That's one, that's, I would say that's level one. And of course, the beautiful, beautiful illustrations done by Maine Diaz. That's level one. Level two might be, okay, let's use this and let's get active with the book. Let's act out the movements. Um, for instance, when the book came out in March, I was sort of marketing at marketing it as a great distance learning movement break. So I would say that's level two, you know, let's be healthy, let's get moving. Level three is when you really go into it and you notice the different types of children in the book and you have conversations about it. You might even to build empathy say, close your eyes and and will and dance. How does that feel? Does that feel different to you? Or, you know, let's sit in a chair like the boy in the wheelchair and let's move from our waist up. How would you move? How would that feel? And, you know, and to point out, I read it to another group, a, a group um, uh, called Mocha Moms, and they were there with their children and they commented on the different shades of brown of the kids in the book and how they had never seen that before. So it's about the discussions that you'll have. And in order for the adults to have those discussions, the adults have to do their own work. They have to deal with their implicit biases. They have to, you know, be willing to engage in these, in these conversations. It's so true. And what you said is so powerful. So one of the most powerful moments I ever had in my classroom, uh, this is how it happened. So every year we do biography book reports and every year uh, someone chooses Anne Frank and I mm -hmm. teach fourth grade. And every year we have about a couple kids in the class who have heard of World War II, who, you know, know about the Holocaust and a lot of kids who don't. And so Anne Frank comes up. And the class, a lot of the class is very confused. Mm. So, and this happens every year. So one year I had a girl in my class who was Jewish and she raised her hand and she asked me, why the Jews? Wow. And I didn't know what to say. So I said, let me think about that. And we'll, we'll talk about it tomorrow. And mm. that day I picked up my son and his friends uh, from the high school after track practice. And I said, student asked me a question today and I didn't know how to answer it. What do you think? And we had a conversation about it. I live in a rural area, so it's, it's quite a distance from the high school back to our house by the time you drop everyone off. So I went home and I thought about it, you know, I talked to them and the next morning I went into my classroom and I wrote down every group of people I could possibly think of that had ever been marginalized. Wow. You know, I had African-Americans, I had women. I had, you know, children. I had, you know, Muslims. I had every group. It was, I don't know, it was like 25, you know, 25 at least different groups of people. So we all came in and we sat down and I said, you know, last yesterday you asked me, you know, why the Jews? And I didn't have an answer. And I said, I do today. I said, the answer is that they weren't the people in power. Mm -hmm. And when the people in power feel threatened by a certain group of people, they systemically put them down. And I said, you could ask that question about any of these groups. Why the Jews? Why the Muslims? Why the women? Why the children? And it was such a powerful moment in the classroom. You could just feel the energy. Now, 
the other part of that story that was really eye-opening was I had sent an email home to the parent of the girl who had said to me, the Jewish girl had said to me, why the Jews? And I said, dear Mrs. So-and-so, I want to let you know that so-and-so asked me this question today and I did not address it in class, but I will be addressing it tomorrow. Meanwhile, I had the conversation and then I had the conversation with my class first thing, 8.30 a.m. And then I checked my email, but wait, listen to this. I checked my email after the conversation and the parent wrote back and she said, oh, dear Mrs. Narita, don't worry about having that conversation with so-and-so. That's the rabbi's job. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh, That's what my she had said. So then no. I had to write back and I said, oh, you know, dear so-and-so, actually, I already had the whole conversation with the class and it went really well. But I was pretty mm. flabbergasted by that response that it's only the rabbi's job to have that conversation. And mm. as you said, mm. I feel it's every educator's job yes. to have that conversation. Yes. When a child asks a question, who it is your job to address it. Now, granted, if it's something, you know, super sensitive, we know I don't need to be specific here. There are certain things, yes, where you may have to say you need to ask your parent about that or something like that. But this type of thing that involves everyone and everyone in the class heard it. And yeah, you, um, you handled it wonderfully. Well, thanks. I needed a day to figure out how to handle it. <laughs> yeah. And that's fine. And I think sometimes as teachers, we feel we have to respond immediately to things and we don't. It's appropriate to say, let me get back to you. And it's also appropriate to say, why don't you try to do some research on your own? That's an excellent question. Why don't you go home? You think about it. You ask some people and I'll do the same and we'll talk about it tomorrow. And, and not only to the student who asked, but that can be sort of, you know, sort of doled out to the entire class to think about. That is an excellent idea. And I, I didn't do that, but I will moving forward. I love that because that really puts you know, that makes the students an active, an active learner and participant in the conversation, you know, rather than me just coming back with some answer. So right. thank you for that. Tip. Absolutely. That's so what came first for you, the passion for teaching or the passion for writing, or did they emerge together? Sure. So I promise I'm going to make this answer short. I feel I'm, I'm feeling my answers have been so long. So this one's pretty easy. And I would say, I guess the writing did because I learned the physical act of writing at age four. And from that moment, I loved writing. And in by first grade, I was writing little fanatic poems. They were really just little silly rhymes that didn't even necessarily make sense. Um, and then I, in second grade was when I claimed that I wanted to be a teacher. I remember Mrs. Barracks was going around the classroom asking people what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I was one of the um, first students asked. I don't know if I was the first, but I would say I was between second and, and fifth. I remember it was very early on. And I said, a teacher, and she gave me a red pencil. And then after that, everyone else said they wanted to be a teacher because they wanted a red pencil. Oh, my goodness. Yep. 
Now, at the time, did you say, did you not say writer because you didn't know like writer was a profession? I've heard people say that. Yeah, I don't think it ever occurred to me. I really don't think I ever, it was just something I did. I didn't think about being an author. I didn't, it was nothing that, yeah, nothing that ever really crossed my mind. Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm wondering, how does your teaching affect your writing? So this is similar to the first question that you asked. And I think it's about the fact that I know kids, you know, and I'm kid centered. And so children are always at the forefront as I write. I'm always thinking about what's the message that I want to offer for them to dissect. What do I want them to take away from this book? Um, And I know that when I'm writing, you know, the kiss of death in picture book writing is to be didactic. You want students or or children, readers to discover um, these important things on their own. But I think I think that's how that's how knowing kids affects my writing. Well, that's true. I think if you don't know kids at some level, it's hard to be an effective writer for children. Exactly. Right. You have to think about what might, uh, you know, I know a lot of writers think about what's going to make a kid laugh. I, I don't really write humorous, right? Um, humorous in a humorous way. So that's not something I think about, but I like to think about what's going to make a kid feel connected. What's going to make a kid feel joy. Um, you know, what's going to make a kid just feel, you know, have an emotion about something. Those are the things I think about. And so I try to write in those ways. I'm wondering, you know, in your role as an instructional coach, how does, how does your writing affect your teaching? Does it somehow help you connect like you were talking about earlier with the teachers that you're working with? Well, I don't know if it does, um, per se, in in a way that one might think. But um, what is the real connection, and it's it's really the intersection of my roles, my careers as educator and author, is that I have been doing author presentations. And I've been doing them in the middle schools, which is where I work as an instructional coach. And I am able to center them around my book, but I've done lessons, for instance, around revision. Now, in the past, I've even as an instructional coach, I've gone into classrooms and I've done a lesson on revision. But I think I have more street cred now because I'm an author and I can actually show and I do. I show students the first draft of Let's Dance, which was actually called I Love to Dance. And then I show them the manuscript I submitted for publication. And I talk about how I moved from the first draft to the second draft. And again, you know, the importance of critique of, of, you know, having received feedback from someone, the importance of using a mentor text and so forth. So I talk about those things, um, you know, those, those, those revision techniques and necessities, but from the standpoint of an author. And I think for right or for wrong, it matters more. Um, I've also talked about idea generating and I talk about how I got the idea for let's dance. And then I also show some of my other manuscripts and, 
Um, I don't, you know, just sort of, I give the little blurb about what they're about and where those ideas came from. So I think it's just great because I'm able to use my own work to talk about the writing process, which I think makes it more legitimate for kids, particularly when you're talking to middle school students who can, you know, they can be a tough audience and, and so forth, but you can see the lights going on and, you know, they're really, and and there are always a couple that just really connect with me because I'm an author. Yes, I have found in the classroom that those lessons on revision and idea generation, because I am an author, are so much more powerful than they would be if I wasn't talking from personal experience. Exactly. So tell us about a breakthrough moment that you had in your writing. So there's something um, that I actually, I'll talk about it because I tweeted it out and I sort of embarrassed myself. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's good to show vulnerability, but I had, it was, um, I think it was about two weeks ago, I shared at my critique group and I really like to, you know, share polished manuscripts, even though, you know, you can share an earlier draft and so forth, but this was something that I'd shared before and I had gotten feedback like minutes before the meeting, I had read feedback from one of my critique partners and I wanted to implement it. And so I implemented it, but it was just, I didn't take the time to really let it sit and to read it aloud. And so I'm reading it aloud, you know, minutes later at my critique group and I'm kind of stumbling through it and I just felt embarrassed. And I realized, I said, you know, revisions are really like wine. You kind of need to let them <laughs> set and breathe and, you know, really before, um, you know, before sort of sharing them or, or even sometimes going back to them yourself. So that was something super recent. And I think the, the breakthrough moments that I would say I have, you know, consistently are around mentor texts, which is why I just tout them so highly because I've had stories. There's one story I was working on and I was trying to get the ending for it and I didn't know quite know how to end it. And I read Saturday by Oge Mora. And when I read that ending, it gave me an idea for my own. And if you were to read the ending to my story and the ending to hers, you probably wouldn't even see the correlation, which is great because that means clearly I didn't plagiarize, but it provided <laughs> the inspiration for my own. And then there was another, just to give another example, even though I could give so many, um, my mentor was, um, and I have an amazing mentor who's a prolific and fabulous author, uh, Kelly Starling Lyons. And she had given me feedback on one of my manuscripts and she was pushing for a little more emotion in one part. And she knows I like to work with emotion, but quite frankly, at the time I read her feedback, I felt two things. I felt one, you know, I have emotion in other places in this story. I'm not really sure I need it here. And I was also making a lot of other revisions. And quite frankly, I wasn't quite sure how to do it without adding a lot of words. And, you know, in picture book writing, um, we try to use as few words as possible to get our point across in, in the best way. And so I was reading a book, Coming on Home by Jacqueline Woodson, 
And there was a part in that book and I, and the light bulb went off and I was like, yes, I now can go back to my manuscript and I know exactly what I need to do. And I was able to accomplish it just by adding one sentence. And again, the sentence that I added is not at all the sentence in Jacqueline's book, but it's, it just, it, it was what I needed. So I think for me, I continue to have breakthrough moments, um, with mentor text and also just, you know, by getting critique from others, my critique partners, I have a writing partner, um, and we share writing back and forth all the time. And I think it's just being in your story and being open to getting feedback and learning from others. You just will have breakthrough moment after breakthrough moment. Yeah, I think a lot of what you said there is so important. In order to grow as a writer, you definitely have to be open to feedback from others. It's interesting what you were talking about in terms of mentor text. I definitely use mentor text too, but I'm usually looking at them from a structural point of view. So it's interesting to hear you talking about them just for anything, you know, for emotion, for, for an ending. You're looking at them just sounds like you're open to any possibility when you're reading a book as to how it might improve your writing. Yes. And what's interesting though, Kate, is those two books I wasn't reading as mentor texts. They weren't where someone said, Oh, you know, you should, well, actually coming on home was, um, Kelly did mention that is something I should read, but I'm sure she didn't know exactly, you know, what I would take from it, but just that there were elements that, were similar to what I was writing about. But when I was reading Saturday, I was just reading it to read it. And it wasn't until I got to the end where I just, again, I made a connection with my own story. And that's why one of the things writers have to do, and this is professional writers and student writers, is you have to read. You have to be in books because Sometimes you don't know where the mentors are going to come or where the inspiration is going to come. But if you're always reading, it will happen. And so it, it's just, and, and like you too, I do read mentor texts that have been recommended for structure. For instance, um, even with Let's Dance, I was um, the person who had given me feedback, Marianne McShane, uh, who is an author as well. She had recommended that I read Water Song by Tim McKenna. And so that really helped me. Uh, and, and it was about structure and it was about language. And I want to, um, my next big project that I want to work on is a nonfiction biography picture book. And so I'm reading a lot of nonfiction uh, picture book bios. So, yes, you do read them intentionally. But it's really wonderful, um, and that's why I, I thought of it as breakthrough moments when you're not even reading something with the intention of becoming inspired, and then you are. Yeah, that's like a magical gift for the day. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, tell us about a breakthrough moment you've had in your teaching. So I'll tell you about a, another recent one, because this one too, I, I wrote them actually on Twitter the same day. And as I said, they were two weeks ago and they were embarrassments. Um, but I was in a classroom and I was doing an author presentation and uh, it was Q&A time and I called on a student. And, you know, when you don't know students' names, 
I try to, you know, I think I'm being polite. I'll say, um, yes, young lady, or yes, young man. And I made a, a gender uh, huge mess up because I um, said young lady, and it was actually, um, it was actually um, a young man. And so I have realized I can't use gender. And so, and also, and I tried to play it off. I blamed the mask, even though it was my fault, but I wanted to try to cover it up. Oh, it's just because you're wearing the mask. And the student did have shoulder length hair and, you know, whatever. But I, so I just have to, you know, I might say, oh, the student in um, the third row or, oh, the student in the red shirt or something like that. I think that's what I'll have to do because I had to try to come up with a way to correct myself and to not assume gender. Uh, and we do this a lot. I think with students, we, um, you know, we, we assume gender and we, we assume a lot about students based on how they look and, and we can't, we can't do that. Um, and the other, I think, um, when I think of breakthrough moment, I think of just, um, you know, back in the classroom, I've, I've always been interested in writing and teaching writing and getting my students to just be fabulous writers. And um, years ago, and it, I know it was years ago because they're both 28 now, and I actually went to the wedding of uh, one of these <laughs> students last year. She got it in before the pandemic. She was married in November, had a nice big wedding. If it was this year, that wouldn't have happened. But um, I had my students enter a lot of writing contests, and there was one year where it was a local writing contest. So it wasn't a school writing contest. It was actually from the entire county, public schools and private schools. And I had the first and second place winner. And oh, wow. I remember the day that, cause I arrived at the classroom and the, the students had gotten there early, these two. And they're like, we have some news for you, Ms. Bowling. And one shared, yeah, guess what? I got first place. I'm like, oh my goodness. And they were good friends. So I thought the other one was just there to, you know, for support. And she's like, and I got second. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is fabulous. And what's interesting is the first place winner, I will tell you this, um, when, you know, I had pushed her to make some more revisions and she had come in the next day, um, and she said, you know, um, I showed my story to my mom and she thinks it's good enough. She thinks I don't need to make more revisions. And I said to her, because you never tell a student their parent is wrong. So I said to her, I said, you know what? Your mother is absolutely right. I said, your story is good enough. But I said, I'm trying to get your story contest ready. And I said, to get it contest ready, there's still more you can do. And so she went back and she did it and she, you know, won first place. So, um, and meanwhile, her parents and I became good friends. We're still very good friends. Um, and, uh, yeah. And they invited me out to lunch with them to celebrate, uh, cause I went to the award ceremony and, uh, I went out to lunch with them and we've been friends ever since. So it's just, it's interesting how, um, 
that happened. But again, I feel so much in my writing, Kate, goes back to revision. I'm a big proponent of revision. It's actually my favorite part of the writing process. It can be the most laborious um, and the most challenging, but I absolutely love it. Wow, that was a great answer. There's a lot I want to talk about. So I think it's really brave that you're sharing how you learn from mistakes. I think that's the most important lesson, actually, that we can model for our students, that we all make mistakes. And the important thing is not to be perfect, but to show how we we can grow and learn from our mistakes. So thank you for sharing those with us. I really, I really appreciate that, you know, and, you know, although the gender identity mistake was made in your presentation, you do have the representation in Let's Dance of someone who is not, you know, gender specific as well. And so I think that, you know, I think that just the more and more representations we have of people who aren't gender specific, the less and less, you know, gender, gender, gender identity mistakes are going to happen. Yes, you're absolutely right. So, and then congratulations on your students winning those contests. That's so exciting. (laughs) Yes. As I said many years ago, and by the way, I didn't say this, but I'm remembering now those two students also read a poem. It was a poem I selected for them to read, but they read a poem at my wedding which was, and by the way, I had them in fourth grade and fifth grade because that was the year I looped up. So actually they won, um, I think it was in fourth grade, they won those awards. And when they read the poem at my wedding, it was, they were both seventh graders at the time. That's so exciting. That must, you must be very close to those kids that you spent two years with. Yes, I am. I am. That's amazing. So how do you balance, you know, your job and your writing? Because, you know, instructional coach at a middle school, that's got to take a lot of time and energy and your writing as well. Yes. And the bottom line is it's a challenge, um, but I love both. So I just make it happen. When I'm at school, I'm, you know, school focused. I do my job. I do what I need to do. And sometimes I come home and there's still some stuff that I need to do for school. But primarily after school and on weekends are time for me to write and do all things and do all things writing. And that includes, you know, meeting with my critique group. There's a a part of our critique group that meets weekly. And so that's a meeting that happens every week. I'm also part of a group called Black Creators and Kid Lit, and we have meetings two or three times a week. Now, I don't go to all of them because there are a lot of industry professionals that come to our group. And so, for instance, this week there was um, one person was talking about fantasy writing and speculative fiction. I didn't need to go to that. Another meeting this week was about... um, YA writing, I didn't need to go to that. But often, I would say most weeks, there's at least one of those I want to go to. Um, There, you know, tend to be webinars or conferences I'm attending, and then writing and revising. So I, I need to keep time aside for, you know, for my writing when I do events. I have an event tonight, actually, a, a kid lit dance party um, that I'm doing with Caitlin Sanchez, who's 
an agent and Kaylee Pugh, who's an author. And so I, I have to stay in the game with both of them. I will say in all honesty, as a classroom teacher, this would, it would be even more difficult to juggle both, particularly as um, my last in, in the class teaching assignment was an eighth grade, was as an eighth grade English teacher. So if I go back to teaching middle school English, I have lessons to plan and papers to grade. It would be a lot more difficult, but I would still have to make it work. I might have to give some of the writing and author things up because, you know, my job as an educator is number one. It has to be at this point um, until I retire, which is, you know, still a few years away. So um, yeah, it's a challenge, but I can't see not doing either one at this point. That's exactly how I feel for me. I can't, there's such a huge part of who I am teaching and writing I'm nowhere near retirement either, but even putting that question aside, I just, they're such a, a part of who I am. It's hard to separate them. Yes. I'm curious, what does your weekly critique group look like? What's the structure of that? So there are a few of us, um, and sometimes it's as few as four or five. The most we ever have is there are seven, I would say, who come. And we... We also have a monthly uh, meeting and then other people are a part of that. But this was a group that wanted to meet more regularly. And so we're much more um, relaxed about it. We, you know, whoever wants to share can share, but we share our screen. We do read our manuscripts aloud, but then sometimes it even gets into a dissecting thing like, okay, go back up to the beginning and let we look at things line by line. It really depends on what the reader wants. Um, but we do, we don't time ourselves for the monthly meeting. Um, someone reads and then we set a timer for five minutes because we generally have more people at those meetings and more people who want to share. But because we have a smaller number at the weekly group, we can take our time. Uh, we also talk about other things, like a number of us went to the picture book Palooza last weekend. So, you know, that's something we'll talk about. Or if people are getting ready for a Twitter pitch or, you know, we'll do that. And also we share, it's not only manuscripts. If someone wants to share pitches or someone wants to share a query critique, we can, we'll do that too. So it's just a really... Um, a really great group. And it really has pushed my writing because, you know, waiting a month for critique is a long time. And also because you know, you have a month, you it's possible you may not be as prolific in your writing. But when you meet weekly, if you want to have something to share, you know, you need to have something new to share for the next week. So, um, so I, I've just really enjoyed that. Now, what about you? Or how does your critique group work, Kate? So I'm in a, I'm in a couple of different groups. And so the group that I've been in the longest meets, uh, it meets twice a month. Mm -hmm. But I have found that this fall, I've not been able to attend that group. It's on Wednesdays and Wednesdays are my toughest day. I'm remote for two hours. And then the rest of the time, my team and I are 
frantically, and that word frantically is entirely accurate, trying to plan our in-class instruction for both cohorts, which does not sync up because we started on Wednesday and the holidays and whatnot, and the online learning. And so it's it's literally a full out a sprint. And so I find that Wednesday nights, I just can't, I can't do that. So, mm-hmm. but I've been part of that group for 17, maybe not 15 years, a long wow. time. Yeah, a long time. So that's my longest standing critique group. I'm also in a group uh, that's strictly nonfiction with a lot of tremendously talented writers. And we write about every, I mean, we meet about every six weeks, but there's no, there's no like schedule, like so-and-so has to submit. And up until last week or the week before, I was working on the fifth draft of a novel revision. And so I hadn't been focusing too much on my nonfiction writing. But now that that's ended, I've, I've given myself a deadline, which kind of ties into what you're saying about presenting once a week we're going to meet the first week in January and I really want to present. So I'm working on a 64 page uh, nonfiction longer form manuscript. And I've given myself the goal of doing one spread every two days so that, you know, by January 1st, I can present the whole 64 pages. So um, the good thing about that is it's forcing me to do that. You know, it is exhausting, you know, with the teaching to also be doing that. But I find that if it's really been increasing my productivity, which speaks to your point about meeting once a week. On top of that, I also joined um, Inked Voices this past year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I met somebody, I did a novel class and that was with two other middle grade writers and the three of us really connected. And one of those people is, um, she's just, she's like a group coordinator and we are all going to present to uh, not one of the people because she's already agented, but I'm not agented and neither is this other woman to it's a it's a group that works to match authors with mentors. Mm. And so that deadline is in January. So she, myself and another person from Eight Voices are critiquing one another's first 50 pages within a two week deadline by December 23rd, which is also my last day of school. Yeah. So it's quite busy right now between um, the the goal I set for myself for the nonfiction and the critiquing the novel and then just the regular end of the school activities. We've got report cards that are due. This podcast will publish after this, but we've got report cards that are due the 18th. And we are making for our students, we're making these cinnamon applesauce ornaments. We're going to make two Ooh. for students. So for me, that's 40. And <laughs> wow. last night, last night, my se- my son who's a senior in high school and his girlfriend tried to make the first batch of dough and it, it didn't work out. So <laughs> after we record this interview, I'll be going to the store and getting another gallon of jug and of a, another gallon of glue and giving it a second go. So. Wow. <laughs> So yeah, so I've been in different critique groups. I've just been extremely fortunate to, I mean, some of these people are close friends of mine, you know, when you're in a group for 15 years, you just get to know people in a really intense way. But I would actually love to be part of a weekly critique group. And that's something I mentioned to these women, these novel writers, as I said, hey, how about if we, you know, would either one of you be interested in meeting 
you know, on a weekly basis. And they both seemed interested, but they wanted to talk about it more in the new year. Mm -hmm. But I think for the reasons that you stated, if you're meeting on a week to week basis, there is pressure to get something done. But also one challenge I found in critiquing novels is that, you know, if you wait till the whole novel is done, you know, that could be a very long time. And I think while it, on the one hand, it's very helpful to get critique on the whole novel. It's also helpful to get critique as you go along. Yeah. The problem with just doing it once a month is that people forget what you brought the month prior, which is fine if you're bringing a different picture book manuscript, but it's not fine, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're trying to bring the next chapter in a novel. So I'm really hoping that both of these ladies are going to be interested in doing that because I feel like it would be a huge boon to you know, my novel writing. I think it'd be a huge boon to picture book writing as well, but I think it's even more important when you're talking about critiquing novels to be doing it on a regular basis. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's wonderful. You have a number of sources for feedback, which is so, um, so important. So that's, I, I think that's fabulous. Yeah, thanks. I, I've, tr- you know, I value it tremendously. I mean, when I first started off writing, which was, you know, 17 years ago, it was 17 years come the new year. I, <clears throat> I used to cry. Mm-hmm. I used to drive home the 35 minutes and cry. And I don't, I don't do that anymore. Right now. I just feel like it's, I don't know. I feel like it's the best gift in the world to get feedback. I just, I, I can't imagine writing without feedback, which is just a very different place than I was 17 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Now the feedback, you have to have it. And I say, you know, while writing itself is solitary, overall, it's not a solitary activity. It's collaborative because we need, we need other people. We need feedback. We have to, we have, to have it. So. Yeah, we need feedback. We need to collaborate with one another to support each other's work. You know, it's, it's definitely not, it's not solitary. <laughs> no. Sure. So what advice do you have for teachers who may be thinking about writing but haven't started? Uh, What can you tell them? Well, I would say definitely think about if this is something you really and truly want to do (laughs) because it takes a lot of time. And, um, you know, as, as you're working, you're not going to have a lot of time. And so you have to really be sure that this is something you want to do. Um, At the same time, you can also make the decision at any time not to do it. Um, You know, if it's early on, I had sort of said even last year, you know, if I decide that I no longer want to do this, I can make that choice. But now that I'm really in it with a book out and working with an agent and, you know, I can't imagine not doing it. So I would say just, you know, think about it. And I would also say, learn from your students. Um, They'll provide great fodder for your writing and they can also give you feedback on your writing. So I think that's a unique place that, you know, um, students can, you know, as a teacher, you do have your students to be able to, um, you know, benefit your writing, which is great. And then, you know, the other things are things that I would say just to anyone who's interested in this, that you want to read a lot and the genre in which you write, 
you want to write often and revise even more. And then, you know, the, the parts, as I talked about, that are collaborative, like having a critique group and becoming active in the writing community by, you know, becoming a member of SCBWI or 12 by 12, or if, you know, you're um, black, joining black creators. So there are just a, a number of things like that. And you know, attending conferences and, and going to webinars and, and just stick with it. Um, I would, I would say that if, if you're really interested, it's not easy, but there is a lot of, um, joy in it when it, when it works. And when you, you know, get a book published, if that's, if that is your goal. Yeah. That's pretty amazing when that book comes in the mail. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So one resource that I saw in another interview that you mentioned that I had not heard of before uh, was Quelly. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah. Could you yep. talk about that? Sure. So that's a conference. Um, it is, um, you know, for writers of color and it's, it's every year in, um, in, in April and it had been in, um, New York City. I actually went one year, uh, two years ago in 2019. I went to New York City for it, and then, <coughs> excuse me, and then this past year, or actually this year, I think I'm trying to make it a past year. Um, it was <laughs> virtual. It's called the Color of Children's Literature Conference, um, and so that they have a lot of great. Um, presenters there, a lot of great workshops and the opportunity as well for manuscript critiques and to buy books. And it's just great to connect with, um, you know, a lot of writers of color. There are writers um, who attend as well and presenters who are not BIPOC, but um, that really is, um, you know, who the conference is for. And so and about, it's a great opportunity. About how many people attend? I'm not good with numbers, so I don't want to say because it would probably be wrong. I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure. And I wonder if the number may have even changed, um, you know, when it was in person versus virtual, because, you know, I think, you know, virtual, we have to look at as much as we like to see people in person, virtual allows people who might not otherwise be able to travel to, to New York city because of the expense or leaving young children, or maybe having a medical reason that would make it difficult for them to travel. So, you know, I, I don't know how many uh, people attended. Yeah. I mean, that is the great thing about virtual conferences is that you can attend from anywhere. And the other great thing about virtual conferences is sometimes they're recorded for a certain amount of time. Yeah. And so if something comes up and you miss part of it, you can go back to it. So I do think there are advantages to virtual conferences. Absolutely. I agree. All right. So what's um, one writing exercise or activity that you can share with our listeners that they might want to try out in their own classrooms? Sure. So um, there are two that I think of. Um, one is to have students brainstorm a list of topics they can work on in writing. Assuming, um, you know, if you have 
if your students have a writer's notebook and you expect them to be prolific in their writing, this way, if they brainstorm a list at the beginning and you even take some time every now and then to have them add to the list and there might be certain activities you do to, you know, for idea generation, this way they don't, they won't be able to say, I have nothing to write about because you can say, look, look at your list. And depending upon if you want to even do it by genre, let's say if you're starting out with personal narrative, um, you might have them, you know, brainstorm a list related to that. And then if you're going into nonfiction or argument writing, you, the list might be different, you know? So this way they, they always have something to look at. And that's pretty, um, pretty simple. And then the other one is something I learned in a workshop years ago, which has been so transformative for my writing. And I call it the copy and paste revision technique. And um, what's wonderful is you look at your writing and sometimes let's say you have something at the end of your writing and you actually copy and paste it and put it in a different spot because maybe it actually goes better at the beginning. Or maybe, you know, there's paragraph two and paragraph three, and you're wondering if those two paragraphs should switch or if there are a couple of sentences in paragraph three that might be better in paragraph two. So you can always sort of copy and paste and read it aloud in both versions and then decide which one you like better. So those are just two quick things. You know, that's the second time this podcast that you've mentioned reading your work aloud. And I think that is so important. When people read their work aloud, they hear, I don't want to, it could be a mistake, but it could even just be something they hear that could be better that you, you don't hear if you don't read the work aloud. That's true. Yep, absolutely. Well, I think kids probably love that copy and paste idea too, because it doesn't actually involve the physical task of writing. Exactly. All right. So we have arrived at our last question. So just for fun, what are a few books that you haven't written that you recommend that every fifth through eighth grade classroom have? So it's really tough to recommend specific books. It's even tough to think of particular authors because there are so many wonderful books by so many wonderful authors, but I'm going to share some of not only my favorite authors, but authors that I've noticed that students enjoy as well. So I'm just going to list them. Um, Jacqueline Woodson, first of all, read anything and everything she's written. One of my best author moments was interviewing, having the honor and privilege to interview Jacqueline at our local library, virtually, of course, uh, because it was in September. And that's a memory that I will just hold very close to me. Um, other writers who are students should read are Jewel Parker Rhodes, Samira Ahmed, Renee Watson, Angie Thomas, Jason Reynolds, and Elizabeth Acevedo. There are others as well, but I think that's uh, enough to get people started. That's a great list. Now, most of those authors I am familiar with, but I have not read anything by Samira Ahmed. Could you tell us a little bit about her? Sure. So she is a wonderful um, YA author, and she writes about um, and a girl who is um, 
an, an Indian Muslim in Love, Hate, and Other Filters. That's a book of hers I've read, and I've also read Internment. She also has other books, but um, those are two that I've read and that uh, that I highly recommend. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations. I always enjoy learning about new authors who I need to check out. And I just want to say, to use your words, that it has been an honor and privilege to interview you this morning. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much, Kate. It has been my pleasure to be here with you and to spend this time getting to know another educator and author, which I always enjoy. I mean, one of the best things about um, writing, and I'm sure you know as well, is the writing community. It's just connecting with people and getting to know them. And I look forward to the time when we'll actually be able to see each other face to face again in person at conferences. So thank you again for taking the time um, to chat with me today. Well, you are so welcome, and I look forward to meeting you in person as well. Take care, Valerie. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Join us again on January 22nd when Chalk and Ink talks with author and middle school teacher Ernesto Cisneros. Ernesto talks about how instead of providing a window to the Latino culture, he wanted to open the front door and say, come on in. His advice for his students and all aspiring authors is dream big. Looking forward to chatting with you again soon. Take care. Bye.